Brothers and sisters, we are ready to begin our second class. Our speaker is Brother Roger Lewis. The theme for Brother Lewis's classes this week is Who Was the Nameless Man of God? Today's class is entitled For the Saving Which He Cried. Brother Roger. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good morning again, my dear brothers and sisters. So here this morning, then, we come to the next part of the story of the man of God, and uh, for that matter, of the old prophet that had interchange with him. And uh, as our chairman has just announced, our study this morning is entitled, For the Saying Which He Cried, which is going to come up in the very verses that we're going to consider together, God willing. Uh, beginning from the 27th verse. And so what we did in our last study was we left the story of the man of God. You'll remember when those travelers upon the road that leads to Bethel had come into the city and reported the strange and baffling spectacle of the body and the lion and the ass that were all to be seen together in the highway a report that reached the ears of the old prophet. And of course, as we observed in our last study, the old prophet knew instantly who it was that lay dead on the highway. And he must have been smitten with sorrow at the receipt of that news because, because he knew of his involvement in the matter. There was no cause for condemnation here. Only grief that such a tragedy had in fact occurred. So in verse 27, it says that he spake to his sons, saying, Saddle me the ass. It's the same expression as verse 13, isn't it? He said to his sons, Saddle me the ass, and they saddle the ass for him. And now again, he says in verse 27, he spake to his sons, saying, Saddle me the ass, and they saddled him. So on both occasions, the old prophet rides, and he rides upon an ass. But the first time he rode out to bring the man of God alive into the city of Bethel. And now he will ride out to bring back the man of God dead into Bethel. But do you notice the ass that he rides on, verse 27? Obviously isn't the ass that the man of God rode upon in verse 23. So this was a second S that the old prophet had and the old prophet owned. So verse 28 says, He went and found his carcass cast in the way. You know, that expression is a triplet in this particular passage. Did you notice verse 24? His carcass was cast in the way. Verse 25, they saw the carcass cast in the way. Verse 28, he found his carcass cast in the way. Something interesting about this, you see, something unusual. And, and I think what's unusual about it is two things. The lion hadn't dragged the body into the undergrowth of the forest from whence it had sprung, which would be the natural thing for a lion to do, is to kill the prey and then drag it safely away into the undergrowth for himself. But the lion hadn't done that. The, lion, the body wasn't dragged away. It was still left out on display. In fact, the body lay in the very center of the road. 
right there in the middle of the highway, on display in public view to all who passed by. What do you think the old prophet thought, brothers and sisters, when he arrived around the bend and suddenly saw the dead body right there in the middle of the road? What do you think the old prophet thought? Well, I think one of the things he would have thought was, this should be me. Don't you think? This really ought to be me. He felt that, you see. And, and, and you notice what verse 28 says. He went and found his carcass cast in the way and, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. You see, it was just the most peculiar thing. It was like the presence of the ass and the lion was sort of like two sentinels there on guard weren't they? Standing to attention, as it were, to guard the body from further damage or removal. No one with that lion standing there would have done anything to that body, would they? And yet the strange thing is, as the record says, verse 28, the lion had not eaten the carcass nor torn the ass. So the body's dead, but it hasn't been ravaged, and nor has the lion turned upon the ass. So when we picture the scene of verse 28, brothers and sisters, it's almost like a tableau that has been frozen in time, as if the Spirit would bid us to take a photograph of that moment. There's the dead body, there's the lion, there's the ass snapped together in a moment of time, frozen until at least the man of God might come on this occasion. Now, let me tell you something interesting about lions and their prey. If you come to the book of Psalms and to the 17th Psalm, here's an observation about the prey of the lion and how they deal with it. We're told in Psalm 17 these words in the, um, the 12th verse. Psalm 17 verse 12 says, like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. The lions are greedy of their prey. The margin says they desire to raven. That's the instinctive tendency of the animal, to take a prey, and once they've taken a prey, to fiercely guard it, because, well, because it's theirs. If you come to the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, and verse 29, we've got something similar. In the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 5, and verse 29, the prophet says this. He says, Their roaring shall be like a lion, they shall roar like young lions, yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. They shall roar and lay hold of the prey and carry it away safe. And notice the last bit, and none shall deliver it. Once that lion's got that prey, you won't get it back. None can deliver it. And one last passage in the book of Nahum. Now, Nahum's one of those tricky little prophets, isn't it, in terms of where to discover him. But he does lie, of course, in the midst of the minor prophets. So, Nahum, the prophecy of Nahum. And it's just before the prophecy of Habakkuk, which is probably equally obscure, but we'll find it, I'm sure. In, in the book of Nahum, in chapter 2, it says this in the 12th verse. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. 
Do, do we get the idea of how lions treat their prey? Now, now come back to the first of Kings in chapter 13, and, and let me just make an observation then in the context of those passages about the instinctive behavior of lions, both for taking the prey and for then putting it away safely where they want it and for preventing anyone else from coming at it. The lesson of those passages, I think, brothers and sisters, is quite simply this. If you try and take prey off a lion, you intervene at your peril. Uh, you just don't do that. And yet the man of God, verse 29, is going to take up the carcass of the man of God. You've got to stop and think about this for a minute and picture the scene and imagine just the implications of what verse 29 is saying. The prophet took up the carcass of the man of God. So in order to do so, he faced the lion. Do you think this man's got faith? Yes, this old man might have failed and he might have made a mistake and he might have lied, but do you think he shows faith here to intervene in this way? Faith, faith enough, brothers and sisters, I suggest, to face his own death in taking up the corpse which the lion was guarding like prey. Faith to believe that the lion was guarding the body for him to remove. Now, would you like to put that face to the test? Because he got down from his own ass, you see. And at that moment, he was completely vulnerable on the ground. And the lion watched him as he walked to the body. And the lion watched him as he lifted the body. And the lion watched him as he walked to the second ass and placed the dead body, the carcass, on the ass. And finally, when he'd ridden away on his ass and leading the other ass behind him with the body on it, the lion also left the scene. What a remarkable story. Whatever you might think of the old prophet, brothers and sisters, you have to be astonished at the courage of that moment, don't you? You see, I think he's changed. Changed enough to do that. And the record says, verse 29, he laid it upon the ass and brought it back. So the man of God was taken away on the ass he arrived on. One of, the, one of the interesting things about verse 29, and I think it is right for us to read it this way, brothers and sisters, there's no indication that anyone else was there. I think the old prophet was there on his own. It was an individual moment of truth and response for the old prophet. If we had doubts about the integrity and the courage of this man, well, we couldn't so, do so now. This was an extraordinary act of faith and devotion. And do you think when he rode back into the city that no one would particularly notice? I think the whole of Bethel knew that he'd, that he'd ridden out. Do you know why, brothers and sisters? Because no one else would go down that highway. They all knew that the old man had ridden out on the ass, and they were all thinking, what will happen to him? And they were all watching to see whether he would come home safely. The whole of Bethel would know when he rode back in with the dead body of the man of God. Don't you think, on the ass? This thing wasn't done in a corner, was it? And it says, verse 29, that he came to the city to mourn and to bury him. You see, I think his respect for the man of God was such that he was determined 
not to let him suffer the indignity and the shame of being left unburied. At least he could avoid that shame for the man of God. Now, notice something interesting, brothers and sisters, verse 29. He brought him back to the city to mourn and to bury him, but he didn't send the body back to Judah. Because that would have been in contravention of what God had said through his mouth in verse 22. Thou shalt not come, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. Now he couldn't send him back to Judah. God said that's not possible. But he could at least, brothers and sisters, at least he could bury the man with dignity in Bethel. And so he sought to do what he could. When it talks about this, interestingly enough, in that verse, to mourn and to bury, there's other examples of those two things being brought together in the matter of an untimely death. Do you remember in the book of Kings, not Kings, Chronicles, the second of Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 24 tells us that when Josiah died, obviously prematurely, it says they buried him and they all came and mourned for him. There was burial and mourning brought together at the moment of the untimely death of Josiah. In Acts chapter 8 verse 2, when Stephen died, it says that devout men buried him and they made great lamentation for him. There was burial and mourning side by side. And the old prophet manifested that spirit now in honouring the dead man as he brought him back to the city of Bethel to at least make sure that the man of God might be buried with some semblance of dignity. So verse 30 says, He laid his carcass in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. They, he, he laid his carcass there, brothers and sisters, because it was an act of kindness and care, which he could at least perform for one who could not be buried by his relatives. No one else could do it. None of his family was present. So the old prophet said, I can do it, I will do it. You see that word grave in verse 30? That's the same word incidentally translated sepulchre in verse 31. And I think it refers to those burial tombs that the Jews were wont to hew out of the rock. It was a rocky tomb. And into that tomb a ledge would be carved and the body would be laid upon the ledge inside that rocky tomb. And I think that's where the body of the man of God was placed on this occasion. And they mourn for him, saying, Alas, my brother. Now that word, alas, if you come to Jeremiah chapter 22, that was the customary term, the Jewish word, that was used for the mode of mourning. I must say that the funerals of Jewish people were, shall we say, much more expressive than our own slightly more formal versions. There was lots of wailing and lamentation. And it might have been seen on the one side that that was an outward show of grief that was perhaps unnecessary. But strangely enough, there was wisdom in how the Jews mourned because they mourned with certain release of passion and feeling and as a result of that, emptied the bottle of tears. Sometimes we don't always empty the bottle, do we? We bottle it up. The Jews had a process that allowed them to grieve and to cry and to release. So here it is, Jeremiah 22, verse 18, it says... Therefore thus saith Yahweh concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, same word as 1 Kings 13, or alas, sister, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my Lord, or alas, his glory. And that was the word 
It's an onomatopoeic word in the Hebrew. It sounds like the expression of grief. And even though it might have been what the Jews customarily did, I think we can probably rightly conclude in the first of Kings in chapter 13 and verse 30, when it says on this occasion that the old prophet said, alas, my brother, that he really meant it, that he really was lamenting the unexpected death of the man of God, and of course, the part that he'd played in that particular outcome. This was a genuine lamentation, a genuine mourning on the part of the old prophet in first of Kings Chapter 13, verse 30. Oh, notice one more thing, brothers and sisters, in the verse. Do you see this? It says, and they mourned for him. Oh, did you notice that? It's not just the old prophet. Who's the they? Well, I think probably, at the minimum, his sons. So his whole household's involved now in the matter. And perhaps more besides. But certainly this family, this household, are now involved in the matter of their lamentation for the dead man of God. And I think there's evidence here, you see, in the spirit of the old prophet, verse 30, that the man of God's death had affected him sufficiently to bring about a real change in his own faith and in his own attitude. And remember this, brothers and sisters, verse 30, remember this, he did all this in Bethel where Jeroboam presided. This whole funeral service and the place of the sepulcher would be known to the king. Perhaps the king could have stopped it, but I dare say he didn't want to. But this was, again, an act by which the old prophet had the courage to do that in the face of the king. He buried this man and made lamentation for him. And the whole city knew it, brothers and sisters, including the king. You see, the old prophet has made a stand. In fact, it says, verse 31, it says, It came to pass, after that he had buried him, that he spake to his sons, saying, when I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried, lay my bones beside his bones. So I think what we're being told in this verse is that the old prophet had obviously thought now the whole incident through from the divine perspective. And he realized that the hand of God had been in this transaction. He saw it as providential. And he saw it as providential not only for the man of God, he saw that this was providence outworking in his own life also. He could not witness that terrible end without realizing that there was a warning in it for him. God has a message for me in this matter, I think was the spirit of the old prophet. Now there's something good about that lesson, brothers and sisters, because the lesson is this. Is this. It takes courage and humility to accept the rebuke of heaven. He could either bow before it and submit to God, or he could defy it and deny its significance. And the old prophet chose to submit, which must always be the way for the saint of God. That when whatever crisis in our life comes up against a divine principle, we seek to submit to it and not to deny it. And I think the old prophet, you see, didn't want his own life to end 
without having made a commitment of renewed faithfulness before his God. In fact, if you come to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 13, we've got a comment from our Lord Jesus Christ that is particularly apt for the circumstance that the old prophet found himself in. I think here's the spirit of the lesson that he was learning on this occasion. In Luke chapter 13, in verses 1 to 5, the Lord was asked a question. A comment was made to the Lord about a particular tragedy that occurred in the land. And the Lord said this, Luke 13, verse 1, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Here's the lesson, brothers and sisters. It wasn't that the man of God was a sinner above all other sinners. Oh yes, something had happened in his life according to the purpose of God, but the lesson for the, the old prophet was, except ye repent, ye also shall perish. And he took that lesson to heart, did he not, brothers and sisters? In the actions that followed, when he went out to bravely bring back the body, to bury it in the way he did. And then as he says, bury me in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried. It's an interesting thing, by the way, because again, it's to do with the Jewish mind and what they think about these sorts of things. We're told in one place this. Let me just find the passage. We're told in the, uh, in the book of Ruth that when Ruth leaves the land of her nativity with Naomi, her mother-in-law, she says this in Ruth chapter 1, verse 17. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried, she says. Perhaps we don't realize just what a commitment Ruth was making. Not just that where thou diest will I die, but there will I be buried. And for someone to wish to be buried, not with their own family, but with somebody else, was a mark of profound respect for that person. I wish to be buried with you, she says, not her own family. That was an enormous thing. That was a declaration of what she thought about Naomi. Well, that's what this old prophet feels about the man of God. He's not worried about being buried with his own family, as his, the way in which he honors the man of God is to say that he would like to be buried with him. And incidentally, when it says in the um, first of Kings chapter 13 and verse 31, when I'm dead, bury me in the sepulcher wherein the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones, I don't think when he said that, that that old prophet thought that in any way that would be a benefit to him. After all, he was going to be dead. But he wanted to express his solidarity with this one who had so strongly affected his own life for good in the truth. So here's the lesson. And it's a good lesson. It's about the power of example. You see, the man of God on this occasion provided an example of faithful witness which finally moved the old prophet to repentance and change. It was the power of example that did that.
In the first of Samuel in chapter 14, Jonathan provided an example of remarkable bravery when he scaled the cliff to go to the Philistines and it inspired the Hebrews who were all hiding to come out of hiding and join him in battle and they won a great victory on that day, but all inspired by the example of one person, you see. In Acts chapter 16 and verses 14 to 15, we're told that Lydia provided an example of outstanding hospitality. So powerful was her example, brothers and sisters, that she imbued her whole ecclesia, the ecclesia at Philippi, with her spirit of gracious care. The example of one woman became the guiding spirit of that ecclesia. The power of hospitality as exhibited by Lydia. In Acts chapter 27, we're told that when Paul was on the ship and the whole of, it, when all those on board were terrified out of their wits, he provided an example of stirring faith, be of good cheer, Nothing, no one shall be lost, and he encouraged all others on the boat to share his confidence in a time of trial and distress. You see, this is the power of example, brothers and sisters. What the power of example can do for others. And now, when we come to verse 32, now the, the old prophet gives the reason why he wanted to be associated with the man of God. So just reading the last part of verse 31, and then reading across into verse 32, lay my bones beside his bones for the saying which he cried by the word of God, by the word of the Lord. See, that's why he wanted to be associated with the man of God. It sprang from a conviction that the message he'd heard that this man had spoken was the truth of God. He believed that now, totally believed it. And this was his way of being counted with the man of God and declaring to the king, that he believed that Jeroboam's system of worship was false and that it would ultimately suffer the judgment, the very judgment that the man of God had predicted would come. Whatever the old prophet had failed to do in the past in standing against the wrong, he'd make amends now, he'd make witness now, and he was anxious to demonstrate to others that the man of God had indeed come in the word of Yahweh. Deliverance will come by hearing him. Destruction will come by ignoring him. So I think that what we've got here is the final proof of the conversion and the transformation of the old prophet. And his conversion is made complete now in the death of the man of God. And the story of the man of God and his brave message had stirred the heart and the spirit of the old prophet now into making change. And that's the effect that strong and decisive spiritual leadership can bring in ecclesias. It can rally the faith of others who've been weakened to the point where they have failed to make a stand. One person in an ecclesia can transform others by the power of a good example. It's a marvelous lesson in that, brothers and sisters. And the wonderful thing is that the power of the example of the man of God on this occasion was capable of transforming the old prophet even up to and after the moment of his death. So the old prophet says, verse 32, 
I want to be associated with him because of the saying which he cried by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places. Now, if you come back to chapter 12, we notice in chapter 12 and verse 29 that the calves were set in Bethel and in Dan. Verse 31 says he made a house of high places and priests of the lowest of the people, but that high place was in Bethel. It says at the end of verse 32, he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he'd made. So to start with, brothers and sisters, I think there were only two high places, one in Bethel and one in Dan. But that's not what chapter 13 verse 32 is saying. What it says here is for the saying which he cried by the word of Yahweh against not just the altar in Bethel, and not just against the high place in Bethel and Dan, now against all the houses of the high places. And what we're being told, you see, is that now there's lots of high places scattered right through the whole of Jeroboam's entire realm. His system of apostasy is now infiltrating the kingdom in every place. That was part of Jeroboam's sin. Oh, it began in Bethel and Dan, but the king's deliberate intention was to spread little high places through all the cities of his kingdom. So what this verse is doing is expanding the terms of the prophecy that we originally had in verse 2 when he cries out against the altar in Bethel, but clearly the man of God had also cried out against that spreading of apostasy throughout the length and breadth of Jeroboam's kingdom. In fact, it goes on to say that they are in the cities of Samaria. Now, incidentally, that's, firstly, that's the first time I think the word Samaria is found in the Bible. And it's a strange place for it to turn up because Samaria hasn't been named yet. Samaria is not named as a city until chapter 16, verse 24. I think the writer is using the term here retrospectively to describe not so much Samaria the city as Samaria the region, and he's using it as a proxy term for the northern kingdom, just like Ephraim was. So Samaria is going to be the main town, and it's a synonym for the northern kingdom. And Ephraim is going to be the main tribe, and it's a synonym for the northern kingdom. So if you heard about Samaria, you would know that that could refer not just to the city, but to the whole of the kingdom of Israel that Jeroboam presided over. And if you heard reference to judgments upon Ephraim, that's a reference to the same northern kingdom that Jeroboam presided over. But he doesn't say here, in all the cities of Ephraim, he says in all the cities of Samaria. And I think he chose the word Samaria on purpose, brothers and sisters, because the name Samaria would become synonymous with apostasy itself. 1 Kings 16 verse 32 talks about an altar for Baal in Samaria. 2 Kings chapter 13 verse 6 talks about the grove in Samaria. Jeremiah 23 verse 13 talks about the false prophets in Samaria. Amos 8 verse 14 talks about those that swear by the sin of Samaria. It's a reference to the golden calves. And now here in the first of Kings 13, verse 32, we've got all the high places of Samaria. Samaria was the land and the kingdom of apostasy. The man of God cried out about all of that, brothers and sisters. So when it says, when the old prophet says that the man of God had cried, 
against all these things, verse 32, he's not referring to the saying of the man of God in verse 3 when he said that the altar would be rent and the ashes poured out. That's already happened. No, he's talking about the thing that the man of God cried in verse 2. So come back to verse 2 of the first of Kings 13. That's the saying which the man of God cried that the old prophet is particularly making reference to. For the saying which the man of God cried, it's about verse 2. And I want you to notice particularly what in fact was going to happen and what the man of God had said would come. Verse 2, he cried against the altar, but then he says this. He says, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and he's going to do two things in particular. Upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places. So you see that word offer, that's zabak, to sacrifice. He was going to sacrifice priests on their own apostate altar. And the second thing he was going to do, he was going to burn men's bones upon that altar. He was going to sacrifice the corrupt priests on the altar, he was going to burn the bones of the men upon the altar. And by those two means, he would desecrate the altar before he would ever destroy the altar. And in those two signal acts of judgment, the whole system of Jeroboam one day would be overthrown. And remarkably, brothers and sisters, let's come now to the second of Kings chapter 23 and see just how precisely, how wondrously, precisely, the prophecy of the man of God was outworked in the fullness of God's plan. Because when we come to the second of Kings, we come to the life and the times of the very man that the man of God had referred to who should come. Here it is, 2 Kings 23 and verse 15. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place, he broke down. He burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. That's the very judgment of the first of Kings chapter 13 that was prophesied, isn't it? And here remarkably is a man of the house of David, a king of Judah, who somehow controls the city of Bethel. And you never guess what the man's name is, verse 16. Why, he's called Josiah. That's the very name that the man of God gave in the first of Kings 13. A man of the house of David shall come, Josiah by name. Well, here he is, brothers and sisters. He's come. And verse 16 says this. Isn't this remarkable? As Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount, and he sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres and burned them on the altar. And he polluted it according to the word of Yahweh, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. See that word proclaimed in verse 16? The man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words? That's the same word in the first of Kings chapter 13, verse 2 and verse 32, which the man of God cried those things which the man of God cried for the saying which he cried. So here it is again, 2 Kings 23 verse 16, according to the word of God which the man of God cried and cried these things. So Josiah, in the very act of fulfilling the prophecy of the man of God, suddenly, suddenly says this, verse 17. He said, what title is that that I see? So he spotted one particular sepulchre. And um, 
You see that word title? It's only found three times in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word siyun. It's translated here as title, 2 Kings 23, verse 17. It's translated as waymark in Jeremiah 31, verse 21. And it's translated as sign in Ezekiel 39, verse 15. That's the only three times it's found. And so Green's literal translates that phrase. He said, what is this monument that I see? Actually, it was a tombstone, brothers and sisters, what used to be known as a sippus, C-I-P-P-U-S, a high stone that was used deliberately as a grave marker. Not all sepulchres had sippuses. This one did. This one had a marking stone to mark it out. Who do you think put that marking stone there? I think the old prophet or his sons. Someone knew that that grave needed to be marked out for future recognition. And so when Josiah says, whose is that sepulchre there with the special marking stone? The answer came, well, well he said, the answer of verse 17 says, the men of the city said, well, that's the sepulchre of the man of God, which came from Judah and cried these things which thou hast done against the altar of Bethel. And who knew the answer? Why, the men of the city, the men of Bethel. Now, how remarkable, brothers and sisters, that the men of Bethel, 300 years later, knew which sepulchre that was. It's been marked with a tombstone for 300 years for this one moment in time when Josiah would arrive on that day to execute the judgment of the prophecy of the man of God. So you see what he does? Verse 18, Josiah said, Let him alone. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet that came out of Samaria. And that prophet, by the way, that came out of Samaria is the old prophet of Bethel. That's what it means. He belonged to the kingdom of Samaria. Now when that old man made his last request to be buried alongside the man of God in the sepulchre, brothers and sisters, how could he have known that 300 years later his own burial place would be left undisturbed because of where he'd asked to be buried? He wouldn't have known that, would he, the old prophet? It all came out, though, you see, in the providence of God. And so verse 19 says, And all the houses also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, Josiah took away. Do you know where that phrase comes from? All the houses also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria? That's straight out of the first of Kings 13, verse 32. This is the moment. This was the fulfillment of the very thing that the man of God had prophesied. Now, you know, brothers and sisters, that record finishes with these words in verse 20 when it says, He slew all the priests of the high places that were there upon the altars, and he burned men's bones upon them. What were the two things he did? He sacrificed the priests upon the altars, and he burned men's bones upon the altars. Those are the very two things that the man of God prophesied Josiah would perform in the first of Kings, chapter 13, verse 2. Those two things. 
I think even the old prophet of Bethel could not have imagined how completely the words of the man of God would be outworked. But he believed with absolute conviction that they would happen. And so when we come back to the record now of the first of Kings, let's come back to the story, the first of Kings chapter 13. You see, here it is, brothers and sisters. What he says is this, verse 32. For the saying which he, the man of God, cried by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, that saying, that saying which he cried, it shall surely come to pass, said the old prophet. I believe that, he says. Now, in the Hebrew, those words are in emphatic form. In fact, they're emphasized by means of the Hebrew being doubled. So the Hebrew says, hoya, hoya, come to pass, come to pass, which being translated means surely come to pass, definitely come to pass. It's doubled for emphasis, you see. And I think what we've got here is the conviction of the man of God concerning something that he now recognized finally, sorry, the conviction of the old prophet concerning something that he now recognized about what the man of God had said and done. And so what he is really saying is that in his view, he understood now that the man of God had given testimony, the testimony of truth in his prophecy of judgment against the work of Jeroboam, which came to pass in the time of Josiah. Now he knows, now he believes that what that man of God had done was to give the testimony of God's truth. He says, I know that now, says the old prophet, and I want to be associated with it. In Judges chapter 9, Jotham gave the testimony of truth in his parable of the trees. A witness outworked in the overthrow of Shechem and the death of Abimelech. In Ezekiel chapter 5, Ezekiel gave the testimony of truth in his enactment of the shaven head, a symbol realized in detail in the fall of Jerusalem as he took the shaven hair and parted it three different ways to symbolize the circumstances of the fall of the city. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gave the testimony of truth in the Olivet Prophecy, a warning fulfilled in the overthrow of the Jewish Commonwealth in AD 70. You know, brothers and sisters, it's too late to respond to the testimony of truth when it comes to pass. The time to respond is when it's uttered. The old prophet knew that the man of God needs to be listened to now. If the men of Shechem had listened to Jotham, they would have saved their lives. They didn't listen, and his words came to pass, but they died as a consequence. When Ezekiel prophesied, he already being in captivity in Babylon, that the city of Jerusalem would still fall, and they didn't believe it, and it did, brothers and sisters, but by the time they believed it, it was too late, the city had fallen. And when the Lord gave warning in the Olivet Prophecy about the circumstances of the overthrow of the Jewish Commonwealth, it was too late to believe in AD 70. If you didn't believe when the Lord uttered it, you may not even have got out of the city of Jerusalem safely in time. And the man of God knew that when we hear the testimony of truth, we must needs respond straight away. Here's an interesting proverb in that context that, again, I think is pertinent. In the book of Proverbs, 
We're told this in Proverbs 22 and verse 3. It's a lesson not just for what the man of God did on this one occasion with regard to the testimony of truth that he had heard. It's a very good maxim for all of our spiritual lives, including practical issues. Proverbs 22 verse 3 says, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. The Revised Standard Version says, A prudent man sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. See, the old prophet didn't want to repent later. He knew that he needed to do it now because he could foresee the evil. He believed that that judgment was coming. He says the time to change is now. A prudent man foresees what's coming and does something about it now. The simple ones don't, don't understand, don't listen, don't respond. They pass on and they suffer the punishment as they are outworked because they didn't respond to the testimony of truth. Well, this old prophet, brothers and sisters, believed in the saying now of the man of God implicitly, and he was so convinced of its certainty that he made his final stand to be on the side of the man of God and not on the side of King Jeroboam. What a testimony. What a declaration. With the marking of that tomb. So how were his words received? What did his stand achieve in the city of Bethel? And what impact might this special sepulchre have on King Jeroboam? Well, that, brothers and sisters will be the subject of our next study, God willing.